Hello, fellow kids, and welcome back to What is Politics, where we're figuring out how ordinary people can achieve our political goals. This will be the first bleep bloop edition, where we're talking about current events versus the usual political literacy and theory episodes. For the past two weeks, cities all over the United States have been on metaphorical and sometimes literal fire after the absolutely senseless murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police sparked protests against police brutality and racism, which have since spread all across the world. And which makes this the perfect time to talk about bargaining power, and about why police seem to have so much of it that they can get away with literal murder over and over again. Thanks to these protests and the conditions surrounding them, black Americans and poor people and everyone who wants police reform are in an unusual position of having tremendous bargaining power vis-a-vis -vis government authorities right now, particularly in cities and states controlled by Democratic mayors and governors who depend on black votes for their seats. And that means that now is the time to bring forth specific demands and to target specific politicians to implement those demands. Laws are a lot like contracts between citizens and the state, and massive protests and riots are a lot like labor strikes to improve labor contracts and get better working conditions and better pay. If you take countries that have laws that favor citizens, i.e. that have more freedoms and more public services, free healthcare, free education, good infrastructure, it's usually because ordinary people have flexed their bargaining power at some point in their history. For workers on strike, the bargaining leverage that they have is the money that bosses lose for every hour that they're not working. For citizens who want something from the government, our bargaining leverage is that we have votes and we cost money. Money that the government has to spend on paying phalanxes of riot police overtime to beat up protesters, and money that they have to spend to pay municipal workers to work overtime to clean up after the riots day after day, and money that they have to waste jailing everyone and pushing them through the court system, all of which blows a huge hole in ever-strange city and state budgets, and which makes life difficult for mayors and governors who have to make unpopular cuts to deal with that hole in the next budget. And this is happening during coronavirus, when budgets are already taking a major hit to begin with. Sometimes public opinion turns against protesters and reduces their bargaining power, and gives authorities more license to abuse them. But right now, for a whole variety of reasons, a surprisingly large segment of public opinion is on the side of the protesters. Newsweek reports that 74% of Americans either fully or partially approve of protesters burning down Minneapolis police stations. The Wall Street Journal reports that Americans are more troubled by the actions of police in the killing of George Floyd than by violence at some of the protests by a two-to-one margin. These are huge numbers, given how averse Americans normally are to property damage and how much they normally love the police. Police and the military are usually the top two or three most trusted institutions in polls in the United States among Republicans and Democrats. Compare that to the two-thirds of Americans who disapproved of Martin Luther King in 1966. And presumably these numbers are a lot higher for Democratic voters and Black voters than they are for other voters. And as we saw in the presidential primaries, black voters make up a key voting constituency for Democratic politicians. Democrats can't win elections without black voters. And they can't win elections without the white and other voters who sympathize with the black people and the poor white people and everyone else who are being harassed and beaten and senselessly murdered by police on a continual basis. So on the one hand, the protests are costing mayors and governors zillions of dollars and blowing a hole in their budgets which they would normally respond to by breaking everyone's heads in and locking everyone up. But on the other hand, they have to be really careful not to respond to these protests in a way that turns off black voters and everyone who sympathizes with the protesters. 
This is why even the most cop-cowed and cop-loving Democratic mayors and governors are currently kissing protesters' asses and renaming streets Black Lives Matter Avenue and taking a knee in front of the cameras and hugging protesters three seconds before imposing curfews and ordering the police to gas them and crack their heads open. Democratic mayors and governors are stuck between the cops and a hard place, which means that whether you know it or not, people who want police reform have them by the balls. Which is incredible, because it's usually the police who have them by the balls. One thing that isn't being talked about much is why do police have so much power? Why do cops routinely murder and abuse black and brown people, and poor white people, and mentally ill people on a regular basis, and get off without criminal penalties or serious consequences? And why do police departments have such inflated budgets? There are two main reasons for this. Number one is that municipal governments are enormously and increasingly dependent on all of the stupid fines and fees on top of fines that police run around collecting for them every time you sneeze the wrong way. Big moneymakers and campaign donors in rich neighborhoods will get pissed off and retaliate against politicians if the police try to collect fines from them. So instead, police spend their time targeting poor, politically disorganized people. And if the police get pissed off at the mayor or the city council, for whatever reason, they can just tank a hole in the budget by slacking on collecting their precious fines and missing their quotas, or by just refusing to collect fines at all. A crucial part of this story, which isn't part of the conversation yet, is something that I mentioned in my short video about inequality. The wealthiest people and corporations in our society, and all around the world, have effectively used their bargaining power over the last 40 years or so to pay less and less in taxes as a percentage of their ever-exploding incomes. And as a result, there's not enough money in the system to pay for civilization. So like everyone is kissing New York Governor Mario Cuomo's ass for being such a hero at managing this COVID crisis. But what gets very little attention is how one of the main reasons why the situation in New York hospitals is such a shit show is that Cuomo has been slashing hospital and healthcare funding like the Grim Reaper on human wheat since he first got elected as governor in 2009 in order to help keep taxes down for his real estate and other donor pals. So even while the pandemic was at its peak in April, COVID hero Cuomo approved another $400 million in cuts to New York City hospitals for next year's budget. So when COVID comes back in the fall and winter, New York will be even less equipped to deal with it than it was this year. As a result of this sort of thing happening all over the United States for the last 40 years, in the wealthiest society in human history, schools are falling apart, hospitals are falling apart, transportation systems are falling apart, and infrastructure is falling apart. The money that used to be available for all of this stuff is just sloshing around in billionaires' investment portfolios and being used by corporations to buy back and inflate the prices of their own stocks. But while services get cut more and more each year, police budgets somehow keep going higher and higher. Like in LA, the mayor's original proposed budget for 2021 had cuts to almost all services, but a sweet 7% bump for the already enormous police budget. Why is police funding trending in the opposite direction of funding for everything else? Because on top of collecting revenue for cities, police also end up acting as a stopgap to replace disappearing social services. So for every $100 you cut from mental hospitals, you add 20 to the police budget because now they have to go beat up unmedicated schizophrenics who are yelling about 5G and Bill Gates at people on the streets. You cut $100 from schools, now you have giant class sizes of 45 kids who are totally neglected and teachers can't pay attention to anyone who's having a hard time at school or at home. So you add $20 to police budgets to go beat up delinquent neglected kids. 
You cut $100 from public housing, you add $20 to police to go shoot homeless people in the face with rubber bullets. You cut $100 from addiction services, you add $40 to police, because now there's more burglaries by crackheads and heroin addicts, on top of people overdosing who need to be roughed up by cops who show up when you call 911 about an overdose. And on and on till the break of dawn. And the more that services fall apart, the more expensive schools get, the more expensive healthcare gets, the more expensive rent and housing gets, and the poorer and more desperate people become, the more people tend to commit crimes to get by, and the more people also tend to commit petty crimes and self-destructive behavior out of resentment and nihilism, which means you need more police to go beat them up and choke them to death for buying cigarettes with a fake $20 bill. The more desperate people are, the more property owners need to be protected from them. The Real Deal, a real estate trade publication, in an article about the real estate sector's views of the protests, quotes Bernard Harcourt, a political science professor at Columbia University, who says, quote, The whole function of our police system is to enforce private property. At a point in which 800 New York City residents were dying a day from COVID-19, there was no curfew. But break the Rolex window and you get a curfew. That is probably the most vivid illustration of the way in which policing is about private property. So all of this is why someone like Pete Buttigieg, who today is writing baby diarrhea pablum tweets about the importance of black lives and white humility, was cowering in his PJ mask underoos letting racist police run rampant when he was a humble pablum spewing small city mayor. And this is why New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio was still giving the NYPD a rim job and making excuses for an officer who drove a police car right into a group of protesters, even after de Blasio's black daughter was arrested and doxxed by police in retaliation for being at a protest, possibly as a direct insult to her arse-licking dad for not licking arse hard enough. And on top of this, police literally get away with murder because they have massive influence over the criminal justice system. Prosecutors depend almost entirely on police for evidence to get convictions. If you're a prosecutor and you decide to prosecute an officer who shot a homeless man in a wheelchair in the face with rubber bullets, the entire police force will have a man-baby tantrum and stop cooperating with you, and you won't get convictions and your career will be ruined. In Canada, where I am, 75% of judges are former prosecutors who come up in this kind of system. And in the U.S., many politicians with big ambitions also start off as prosecutors and attorney generals, and it really shows. And most likely, this is why Amy Klobuchar's team of prosecutor justice heroes declined to prosecute the cop who killed George Floyd back when he was involved in another pointless killing. And over the years, as this dynamic keeps getting worse, the only people who even want to run for office are people who are okay with presiding over declining cities and states, and who are okay with or even enthusiastic about out-of-control, abusive, racist, and bloated police forces, to the point of total lunacy, like our beautiful boy, Governor Cuomo in New York, who last year proposed a bill to spend $250 million per year on extra police to prevent $200 million a year of fare evasion for the crumbling, underfunded subway system that he never uses. And on top of all this, American politicians need to spend about four hours a day begging for money to get reelected. So for all of these reasons and more, a lot of people who get these jobs and rise up in the ranks are just the worst cowards and ass-kissers and total narcissists and psychopaths and two-faced sniveling lizard people. So you have people who are angry and want changes on one side, and you have this massively powerful, entitled army of he-man, baby, roid rage police, and cop-fearing, cop-loving, psychopath, lizard people politicians on the other side. And right now it's the protesters who have the leverage, because we have the votes, and we have enough public support from key constituencies, and because we're costing politicians money, and because politicians are afraid of us.
Even Republican politicians who don't need black voters. Even Republican politicians who don't need black votes, and whose base tends not to sympathize with causes like police reform that are framed as black causes, are afraid of the protesters. And that's because they recognize that there's an economic dimension to the protests, which spills over into key voters that they need to win elections. Like white voters in economically destroyed Rust Belt states which elected Donald Trump in 2016. So while Republicans like Trump or senators like Tom Cotton and William Gates are calling for the army to come in and start shooting people to death and locking them up for years and years, The Hill reports that a growing number of GOP senators want the government to extend and augment unemployment benefits that are set to run out on tens of millions of people soon, because they, quote, fear that the wave of protests, riots, and other forms of social unrest that has rocked major cities around the country is linked to the bleak economic picture and that their majority is on the line. Unquote. After all, the government ordered shutdowns of businesses that led to tens of millions of people losing their jobs, and countless small businesses closing permanently, more than 100,000 in New York alone as of June. And then they offered up a relief package that was mostly a scam, which transferred enormous wartime levels of money from ordinary people to giant corporations, who will be well positioned to gobble up those shuttered small businesses and benefit from mass employment to keep their labor costs down, in a fast-forward version of the process that I outlined in my short video about inequality. Meanwhile, the government left workers and tenants and small shops in the dust with half-assed Swiss cheese full of holes assistance that doesn't even pay the rent in many cases, and which is about to run out. The history of uprisings and revolts across the world show that people rise up when they feel like they've been cheated out of something that they're entitled to, not when they're being oppressed. It's really telling that in response to the coronavirus shutdowns, people who can afford to brandish $10,000 machine guns and drive $80,000 cars were out protesting for their right to get haircuts and manicures by low-wage workers. But those people whose lives were being destroyed by unemployment with little help from the government stayed home and didn't think to go out and protest to demand adequate aid. Fifty years of propaganda dedicated to making middle and upper class people as selfish and entitled as possible has had its effect, as has fifty years of telling poor and working class people that your suffering is your own fault and that no one will help you when you're in need, including your government. You just go get evicted and starve and cry all alone. But. Where the economic devastation of corona didn't propel people into the streets, the utterly senseless death of George Floyd under the knee of an elementary school bully while three overgrown armed toddlers looked on like brain-dead gorillas did propel them into the streets. And if these protests are being fueled by economic distress, they're not going to go away anytime soon, because the economic devastation caused by the U.S. government's decision to respond to coronavirus by looting taxpayers to feed their biggest donors is not going away anytime soon either. And now that protesters are out and angry and flexing our bargaining power and having politicians afraid of us, we need to capitalize on this and make specific targeted demands. When you're in the power position and you don't make demands, the people in power will be the ones who decide what to give you. And usually that means that they will give you as little as they think they can get away with. Usually that means the most superficial symbolic changes that don't fix anything. Firing a couple of cops actually prosecuting and arresting some obviously guilty ones who got caught recently, taking down some KKK statues that should have been taken down in 1964, calling a street Black Lives Matter Avenue, and taking a knee in front of a camera. And they'll hope that this placates enough people, so that enough people go home, so that they can arrest the rest of the protesters without too much fallout. After the Watts riots, which broke out in L.A. in 1965, and which lasted for a few days after police injured a black pregnant woman, a commission produced a 100-page report that identified the root causes of the riots to be high unemployment, 
poor schools, and inferior living conditions that were endured by black Americans in the Watts neighborhood. Recommendations for addressing these problems included, quote, emergency literacy and preschool programs, improved police community ties, increased low-income housing, more job training projects, upgraded healthcare services, more efficient public transportation, and many more, unquote. But nothing was ever implemented, because once the riots were over, the pressure to implement these things was over, while the pressure to keep taxes low and to not spend money on those types of programs never goes away. After the Rodney King riots, which erupted in Los Angeles in 1992, when four police officers who were caught on camera beating Rodney King unconscious were acquitted, another commission report was produced about how abusive and racist the LAPD were. And as a result, the head of the LAPD resigned. But nothing else changed. There were no demands made by the protesters. Protest over, problem solved for the authorities, who never stopped being under pressure from donors and lobbyists and police. Occupy Wall Street, which lasted for about two months in 2011, was a huge movement that started in New York City and spread across the world, and which had enormous popular support. It raised consciousness about a whole range of issues and problems with our economic and political systems, and it changed our political vocabulary and opened the door for the Bernie Sanders campaigns and a small revived socialist movement in the United States. But in practical terms, nothing happened. It scared Obama away from presenting some Wall Street-friendly legislation that he was planning to introduce at the time, but that happened silently without anyone noticing. No legislation was passed or changed or canned because no demands were made. The occupiers were so insistent on circle-jerking themselves according to a very Americanized version of anarchism that insisted on being totally leaderless and doing everything by consensus that even though they were able to organize food kitchens and street medics and newspapers and fundraising for various efforts, they couldn't get their act together enough to issue any specific demands. No proposals, no demands, no ultimatums, no results. The only pressure they exerted was the pressure of just being there, which wore off after a few weeks as people got bored enough that the New York City police could come in and arrest everyone in the park without much of a public outcry. When it comes to today's protests, the superficial empty gestures by authorities are already happening. Some charges laid against various murder cops, streets renamed, knees taken, speeches given, but the protests still go on. So now, even without specific demands, authorities are starting to put out small substantive changes. For example, there's a bipartisan bill at the federal level to get rid of the insane post-9-11 practice of giving extra military equipment to police forces. The state of Minnesota has filed human rights charges against the Minneapolis PD. City councilors in various cities are calling for different proposals to reform police. Calls are starting to come for actual changes to the way policing works, which black organizations and police reform movements have been calling for for years, and ideas about ways to completely transform the nature of policing are coming together. For example, people are calling for defunding police, which doesn't mean abolishing the police or not giving the police enough resources to function. It means drastically reducing the role of police and limiting them to situations where having an armed macho man rush in is actually useful, while creating a new system of care professionals, social work, and mental health first responders to respond to emergencies where armed force is counterproductive. If you want to capitalize on this magic moment and use it to make the changes that you want to see, Ask local organizations that are focused on anti-police violence and related issues which legislation they want and which city councilors or state legislators to put pressure on. Find out if there are any state or municipal representatives who are already on your side and find out if they have any legislation in the works. I recently helped organize about 120 tenants to go down to the borough council meeting in my city to demand specific legislation that we were proposing to stop renovictions. And to our surprise, the borough mayor was like, 
already on it, my dudes, and new bylaws that met 90% of what we were demanding were out and enforced within a few weeks. This stuff actually happens when you have sympathetic people in office, so make sure to get involved in local elections and fucking vote. There are many black and socialist representatives in city and state governments who are already very open to radical proposals for transforming the police. Find them and see what they're proposing and how you can help. Formulate specific demands and popularize them and push them. In 1883, in Germany, out of fear of a growing socialist movement and continual activism and organizing, conservative monarchist Otto von Bismarck instituted the world's first public health insurance system. In 1964, after years of carefully organized protests that built awareness and sympathy and spontaneous riots that scared authorities, the first Civil Rights Act was passed, in part out of fear of more riots if it didn't pass. In 1968, after protests and riots erupted in black neighborhoods all across the U.S. in response to Martin Luther King's assassination, the fair housing part of the Civil Rights Act, which had been stalled and stuck in limbo for years, suddenly passed in just a few days. The reason that those movements succeeded where others failed was that those protests and riots and movements happened in a context of specific demands and even pre-written legislation. As I'm writing this, a veto-proof majority of Minneapolis city council members just announced their commitment to disbanding the city's embattled police department and replacing it with something along the lines that I just mentioned above. And they signed a pledge to that effect. When the mayor of Minneapolis, who got elected on promises to fix relations between police and citizens, told a crowd that he didn't believe in disbanding the police, he got booed into silence and told to go home, and threatened with getting voted out of office next year, in what the New York Times described as, quote, humiliation on a scale almost unimaginable outside of cinema or nightmare, unquote. Now I see that Bill de Blasio, who a few days ago was pathetically defending police driving into crowds with their cars, is now also promising to cut funding for police and to spend more on social services. And there you go. Now your work is cut out for you. That's the demand. Reduce police services to things that require force and replace the rest with social service response teams. Make sure that your city council makes the same pledge as the Minneapolis city councilors made. If you're in New York, don't let de Blasio get away with some superficial tinkering that he's probably planning to sneak by you. Push him to do what Minneapolis is doing. Make his public life hell until he complies. If you're in Minneapolis, make sure that your city council comes up with a good program. Stay on them. Work with them when they're good. Work against them when they're bad. Find the groups that work on these issues and ask them which specific proposals they're pushing, and help them spread the word and make the demands. Find out which politicians are in the way of progress, and then go protest and boo them and threaten them with primaries and elections, and flood them with emails and petitions and protests, and flood council meetings with people all making the same demands over and over and over. Shame any politician who gets in your way until they buckle. Blast these proposals all over social media. Make sure that all your friends know what the demands are, and which legislators and counselors need to be pressured, and which legislators are on your side, and keep protesting until real change happens. And don't be fooled or placated by supposed protest leaders or politicians who will rise up in this moment and pretend to be on your side for the glory, but who offer empty slogans of peace and love, but with no actual proposals or demands. And very importantly, make sure that everyone understands that the current situation is related to 40 years of tax cuts on the rich. If we don't reverse that situation, we can make some important improvements, but we won't have adequate money to fundamentally change the system, or to do things like replace police with care workers. Taking on the wealthiest people and corporations will require a civil rights scale movement and beyond, and will be a longer term struggle than just these protests. 
When Martin Luther King started calling for economic redistribution, that's when he got shot. No one is more entitled in the world than the ultra-rich who own our countries and buy our governments, and they will lash out when threatened. But ultimately, we have the power if we are organized and adamant and keep protesting. So keep it up and get ready to start up once again after things die down if things aren't moving in the direction that we want and that we need. And don't forget to wear a mask when you're out in the crowds. Protect our elders and everyone who's vulnerable to COVID-19. And thank you for listening. Please share this with your friends in your social networks. And if you can afford to, please subscribe to the What Is Politics Patreon so I can keep this up after my COVID Trudeau bucks run out. And as always, if you have any questions, critiques, corrections, or comments, send them to worldwidescroats at gmail.com or post them on the YouTube videos. And until next time, see ya! <laughs>